Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So back on the farm, we we used to have this old Austin truck. Uh, Dad had picked it up at a clearing sale for almost nothing, probably because it had no brakes and it didn't look real good, but it went really well. Um, At least it went a fair bit better than what what it really needed to when it had no brakes. You see, that truck isn't at all what it used to be. I think the previous owner must have repowered it. So they'd pulled out whatever old, worn-out, useless engine it used to have, and they'd replaced it with a much newer, much bigger UD engine. And it always started just like that. It, that engine would never skip a beat, and that, it, basically that truck was just nothing like what it used to be. It, it had died, but it had come back to life again with a new engine. Uh, probably a better example would be... Um, Sometimes people like to build hot rods and they go and they find some really, really old car which is just a pile of rust. And then they might reuse the chassis or they might rebuild the new chassis, but basically they're just wanting the old body and they put a hot rod engine in it and and you've seen cars like that, haven't you? Now, this is an imperfect example, but an example nevertheless, of the transformation that takes place in Disciples of Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about today, and he's sharing in a very personal way. Uh, In the Bible reading that we just had, um, to set the context, we actually reread a few verses that we covered last week. Um, So let's have a bit of a brief recap. So last week we're talking about how the Jewish way of mind saw themselves as the righteous children of Abraham. And why wouldn't they? They they were the chosen people of God. And and they had God's covenantal law to help them to know how to live as God's people. Uh, But of course, that would mean that the non-Jews, the Gentiles, well, they were sinners because they weren't the righteous children of Abraham and they were ignorant of God's covenantal law. But when the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached, it was preached to all people, it was preached to the Jew and to the Gentile. And the Gentiles came to the faith under this new covenant of grace. Now, when that happened, 
a group that we now call the Judaizers went to the Gentile churches and they tried to convince these Gentiles that, hey, to, to be a Christian, you have to also keep the requirements of the old covenant religious law. And these people were quite influential people, so influential that even Peter was afraid of them. And so Peter pulled back from fellowshipping with the Gentiles and from even eating with the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul, we, we saw this last week, how the Apostle Paul reminded them that even the Jews are not saved by the works of the law. And the only way that anyone can be justified, the only way that any of us can be justified, is by faith in Jesus Christ. But something I didn't mention last week, and maybe I should have, was the way that the Judaizers seemed to select only two particular issues um, when they were having this discussion. What foods you were and were not allowed to eat, and circumcision. And by them doing that, by them selecting these two particular issues, well, that actually turned it into an ethnic issue as to who was in and who was out. You see, many of the Jews, in common with the Gentiles, failed to keep heaps of God's laws. But the only two that they focused on were the ones that separated Jew from Gentile. They chose them and what set them apart from the Gentiles, and so that then made it an ethnic issue. And this went completely against the gospel message that Paul had received and the gospel message that Paul was preaching. At one time, Paul would have completely agreed with them because there was nobody who was more zealous for the law than what Paul was. And we talked about this last week too, about how before Paul was saved, he was training to be a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the ones who knew the law inside out and, and they lived by the law. And that's the reason he persecuted Christians, because he believed that the law required it. These Christians, they're breaking God's law by, by worshipping this man, Jesus. Oh, we can't have that. And this is, why, this is what he means in verse 19 when he said, for through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. Right? It was, when, it was when Paul was in full heat for his zeal for the law that he encountered Christ. Right? It was in his zeal for the law, I'm going to follow God's law, and, and he was persecuting Christians. And it was then that Jesus arrested him there on the road to Damascus. And Paul would never be the same again. Paul died to the law that day. He realised that his zealousness from the law was the one thing which was responsible for the greatest sin that he could ever commit, to reject the Son of God, right? In his understanding of the law, he was going as hard as he could and he truly believed that he was pleasing God by arresting these Christians and overseeing their execution. And that was a real oops moment for him. Oops, when Jesus spoke to him on that road. And so for Paul, he had to repent of the covenantal religious law that drove him to reject Jesus. 
That's what he means when he said that he died from the law. But now the Judaizers are saying, but Paul, by not keeping the covenantal law, you're sinning. And Paul rejects that outright and he shows them the absurdity of their argument. And it goes like this, right? You can't possibly be justified by keeping the covenantal religious law, right? That you can't, cannot be justified that way. But guess what? You can be justified in Christ. You can be made right before God in Christ. But then the Judaizers say, but by choosing Christ instead of the law, you're sinning. And so Paul says, what are you saying that Christ promotes sin? Certainly not. Never. You see, what's happening is the issue at hand is getting rid of our sin. Now, that, that is humanity's greatest problem. How can I get rid of sin? How can I be free of sin? so that I can be justified before God. And through the death and resurrection of Christ, it has been made possible to kneel before our Lord and confess our sin and ask for forgiveness. And so he thoroughly forgives us and he washes us clean. Right? You see, and if you've come here today thinking, my greatest need is to make my marriage a bit better. Or my greatest need is for me to be able to relate to my kids a bit better. Or my greatest need is so that I can deal with my financial problems, right? People come to church for a whole lot of reasons. They have these needs on their mind, but this is not our greatest need. Our greatest need is to be made right before God so that we can be in relationship with God. And then God works out the things that need to be worked out in our lives when we've dealt with our greatest need. And it's through Christ and and receiving forgiveness in his name that we're made right before God. And there we stand, justified in Christ. And that's something that the covenantal religious law could never do. And, And it's totally acceptable to God because... That's God's plan. It's God's only plan and his purpose. It's the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be justified. And that's what grace is. But I want you to be aware that that sort of grace, that immense grace that God gives to us such that we can be justified through faith in Christ, others may think that that's that's simply outrageous. That's outrageous. You, Andrew, you, you can't be forgiven. You're not good enough. Surely you've got to do something more than that. You have to add to it in some way. You have to pay penance in some way. You have to work harder. You have to do better things in the community. You you have to start being a whole lot nicer to people for years before you can be saved. You have to work harder, give more, do more. Some churches say you've got to have a particular spiritual gift before you can be saved. Others may see the grace of God as simply outrageous. 
But how about you and I make a pact right now that we never yield to man who can't handle the immense grace of God? Because that's what's happening here with these Judaizers saying, you've got to keep the law, you've got to keep the law, you've got to keep this covenantal religious law. It's a rejection of the grace of God. And Paul actually says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. That means a wrongdoer. You see, God's means of salvation made it possible for both Jew and Gentile to be saved, for both Jew and Gentile to become one. Now, that's, that's an enormous thing. It's an enormous thing. Yeah, we have enough trouble in our own community of getting people from different races and different cultures to come together and be one. But the Jews and the Gentiles, you couldn't get a bigger racial divide than that. And it was the gospel that made it possible for them to come together as one. They were no longer going to be kept distinct. They were no longer going to be kept separate by ethnic or covenantal legal boundaries. And if Paul was to back away from this, if Paul was to back away from full fellowship with the Gentiles, from the non-Jews, he would be undoing everything that Christ had died to achieve. And that would be absolutely unthinkable. He said that that would prove him to be a transgressor, a wrongdoer. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. At this point, he makes one of the most profound statements explaining the turnaround that he had experienced. And if you're a Christian, you should recognise this as, as something which explains your experience of having a turnaround in Christ. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right Now, a lot of us probably have committed that verse to memory. But do we also dwell on it and think on it, what it actually means? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Can we ever plumb the depths of what that means? This verse expresses the radical nature of what it means to become a Christian. You see, when you become a Christian, you don't just add Jesus to your existing life. You don't even have just a bit of God's transforming work as God Christianises us. And it's not about essentially being the same people, but just a little bit nicer. It's not about being essentially the same people, but just having a change of status. I was unsaved, now I'm saved. To become a Christian is such a radical transformation, Jesus described it as being born again. For us to be identified with Christ, it's no longer we who live. We're crucified with Christ. Has anyone here ever had 
a really bad flatmate, right? A flatmate you might describe as the flatmate from hell. Anyone? Mm, not sure. Oh, Robin has, me. No, um, <laughs> it's uh, probably the, the worst one that I had would have been actually when I was at Ag College. There was one particular lad who was in our um, dorm who was not a very nice fellow. But if you haven't had a really bad flatmate, if you haven't had the flatmate from hell, I want you to imagine this. Imagine that you're a really tidy person. Now, Neil, you're going to have to take a lot of imagination here. Uh, sorry, I was thinking from my perspective. Um, imagine you're a really tidy person and your house is always spick and span, but then your flatmate walks in, takes off his dirty socks, sits them on the kitchen bench, and um, who would... I could see your face, Margaret. That's just... Ooh. Sorry? No. <laughs> I don't know who would ever do that. I, Robin says, why do you always come up with that example? Um, it's because that's one that, that annoys Robin the most. Um, it's a sort of flatmate who you've got the ingredients in the fridge because you've got, you've got people coming over for dinner Saturday night and you're going to cook them up a really nice meal and you've got all the ingredients and then Saturday night after the shops have all closed, you go to the fridge to, to start cooking the meal up for your guests who are about to arrive and there's stuff missing. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I ate that yesterday, says your flatmate. That sort of fella, you know? The, the dog, their dog chews on the furniture when you insisted no pets are allowed. Their car breaks down and they just park it in the front yard with the other wreck that's already there, right? And, of course, they never clean the toilet. You got the picture? Flatmate from hell. Now, that's what it would be like if Jesus moved into my life and I still lived there. Uh, not, not Jesus, Jesus isn't the flatmate from hell, I would be, all right? Um, being saved isn't merely a spiritual experience. It isn't something that you do outside of your body. If Jesus moved in to live inside the old Michael, I would be the flatmate from hell for Jesus. You with me? And it's probably easier for you to understand and picture me being the flatmate from hell than picturing yourselves that way. Um, but we'll get to that shortly, because you are too. Um, when Jesus moves into my life, he doesn't want to live with my decor. He doesn't want to live with my filth. He doesn't want to live with my squalor and my overall offensiveness. And it's the same for you. When Jesus moves into your life, he doesn't want to live with your sin and your squalor and your offensiveness. And if you're having trouble agreeing with this, if you don't agree that before you were saved that you were offensive to God, then you don't understand the gospel. And you don't understand the broken sinfulness of humanity. And you don't understand why the gospel is such amazingly good news and you won't understand how much God truly loves us. Even though our overwhelming sinfulness was so offensive to the Son of God, his love for us was so much greater. It was far greater. He loved us so much that he gave himself for us on the cross. He died for us so that he could remove the offence. 
And so when we become a Christian, the old self dies. The old Michael dies and Christ moves in to live. Right? So it's not Jesus trying to share the space with my old sinful self. Because the old sinful Michael has been nailed to the cross with Christ. And it's Christ who lives in me. And so Paul says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Living as a Christian is a very physical thing. Our soul doesn't race off to be with the Lord. The Spirit of Christ lives in our physical, fleshly bodies. Now, your body is essentially the same, will have essentially the same limitations that it always had. At times, your body will get sick. At times, your body will get injured. In time, God willing, your body will get old and your body will die, unless, God willing, Jesus returns before then. And that's why in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he talks about how we have a treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure? Jesus Christ. What's the jars of clay? These fragile, earthly, fleshly bodies that we have. Christ living inside of us. That's the treasure inside a jar of clay. Right? Now, that's easy enough to understand, isn't it? You with me? Righto. Our current bodies are fragile and weak, but they carry a treasure. They carry Christ. And the life we now live on this earth we live by faith in the Son of God. Now, that's... We talk about living by faith so often, it can become a platitude, can't it? Yeah, we're going to live by faith. But what does it mean? It could mean a multitude of things to live by faith, depending on the circumstances that we're in and depending on what we're talking about at the time. So... To live by faith, it can mean all sorts of stuff, but in the context of today's reading, I just want to share three things. Firstly, to live by faith in the Son of God means that we will live differently. We will live by the Spirit. And Paul will get to that by the end of his letter when he talks about living by the Spirit. You see, if our old self is crucified, Christ is now living in us, that's going to look pretty different, isn't it? Certainly will look like that very different in my case. And so I'd better not pull the old Michael down off the cross again and once again become the flatmate from hell for Jesus. We live by the Spirit of God in all righteousness. Now, sometimes that's hard because sometimes I realise that I have let the old Michael wiggle himself down off the cross. And I've started living for myself instead of, instead of living for Christ. And that's what sin is. And so I thank God that he allows us 
and enables us to repent of that sin over and over again. We confess our ongoing sin and Christ forgives me. So to live by faith in the Son of God means that we will live differently. The second thing it means is we fix our eyes on eternity. Because whenever Paul speaks about our fleshly bodies, we should always know that in the back of his mind, he's talking about the converse to this. Our fleshly bodies as opposed to our spiritual bodies. So the fleshly bodies that we live in now, these, these weak, fragile jars of clay, as opposed to those eternal spiritual bodies that we will live in with Christ in glory. Now, I suspect you've probably noticed as well that many people who claim to be Christians continue to live as if the main thing is these fleshly bodies that we have. Um, for me, it was really highlighted in the, in the peak of the COVID crisis where, where Christians were so, some people, some Christians, not all, were so fearful that their life might get cut short a little bit by a few years. And it really revealed what our priorities are and what, what our minds are fixed on and where our hope is held. See, our fleshly bodies are not the most important things that we have. And some folk focus all of their faith on this earthly, fleshly life. And they try to increase the length of life. They try to increase the quality of life, try to increase the blessings that we have, try to increase the finances we have, the stuff we have. Now, this is not at all the example of Paul, and it's certainly not the example of Jesus. Now, if Christ, if it is Christ who lives in us, how do you think that we will relate to this life compared to the next? If Christ lived sacrificially, how do you think we will live if Christ is in us? If Christ lived his life as a life of love for others, how do you think we will live if Christ is in us? If Christ gave up everything to follow God and to fulfil his purposes, how do you think we will live if Christ is in us and it is Christ who is living in us? We certainly won't be clinging to this life. And so to live by faith in the Son of God, we fix our eyes on eternity and the life to come and the glory in Christ. But the third thing, and uh, if you've been hearing me preach for a while, you'll know that I usually leave the most important one to the, to the most important point to last. And the third thing and the most important thing in the context of today's reading is that to live by faith in the Son of God means we trust entirely in Christ for our salvation. And we don't let the old covenantal religious law ever prevent us from fellowshipping with other Christians of different physical or ethnic backgrounds. 
We are all one in Christ. And so Paul concludes in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's rather sobering, isn't it? If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There are a lot of people around today who'd say to you, oh, I don't need Jesus because I'm a good person. Really? Oh, you're so good that you don't need Jesus. I guess God must have got it wrong. Sorry, God, Jesus didn't need to die because this person's good enough without you. See, not even Israel, not even the chosen people of God who were keeping the covenantal law could be saved through that. Christ did die with a purpose. He did it with a passion and he did it with a purpose. What was the passion? What was the passion that drove Christ to the cross? Now, there might be a few folk listening to this today that I'm going to break their hearts uh, because a common thing we get told is Jesus needed us. Jesus needs you. Jesus needs you so much, and that's why he went to the cross. I'm going I'm to sort of tear down that illusion. Do you think the creator of the world needed you? <laughs> I know he didn't need me. He didn't need you. He loved you. And, and this is where we realise how great the love of God is. I mean, if I need something and so I have it because I need it, yeah, well. But if I love something, and that's the only reason I have it, because I love it. Sometimes, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Robin, but sometimes I think, gee, I was batting well above my average when I got Robin. I mean, if, do you think Robin needed me? I don't think so. And I just realised how much she must love me. Um, when we were first married, we um, lived in this old caravan through a mouse plague. Now, you, you think we've got a mouse plague here at the moment. You're nothing like what we used to get at Dolby. Um, there was a spot on the road at Dolby. It looked like carpet because of all of the squashed mice. Like, it, it was just incredible. And we lived in this really, really old caravan, which was n nothing verging on mouse-proof. And... Um, we, because our house didn't, wasn't built, and the toilet that we had was this hole that I dug in the ground, and, um, and to try and keep the mouse mice out, we'd sprinkle naphthalene through all of our stuff in the, in the caravan, and we'd walk into church, and people wouldn't even have to look around. They didn't tell us this until later, um, but they knew that we were in church because they could smell us. We'd arrive. And the friends looked at what I put Robin through and they, their comment was, Robin must really love Michael. 
Why would she put up with this? She must really love Michael. We were enemies of God in our sin. We were deeply offensive. You think about how unholy you were before you were saved and how holy God is. And yet Jesus died for you and me when we were in that state. He loved us that much. Isn't that a whole lot better than being needed? Yeah? To know that we love that match. That's, that's the passion. And what's the purpose? The purpose was to restore all who turn their hearts to Jesus to a position of righteousness that the covenantal law could never achieve. I'm going to ask a question today. Are you justified? That means, are you made right before God? Are you holy before God? See, in the the New Testament, they refer to the Christians as the saints. The word saint in the Greek, hagios, which means holy ones. Are you a saint? Are you a holy one before God? Not sure? Has your old self died? Have you crucified your old self and been born again? Have you asked Jesus to come inside and to live as Lord of your life? If not, let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who loves us so much that while we were still sinners, and, and not just minor offenders, we, we were sinners of the worst calibre who rejected you. While we were offensive sinners, Jesus loved us so much he died for us. Lord, I recognise that my old self, my old way of living, was so offensive and so far from your will that there was no way I could become righteous without your intervention. And so I thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. Lord, please put to death my old sinful self and come into my life to live. And Lord, help me to live this new life you've given me, to live it to God. Day by day, help me to follow you, always yielding to you, always submitting to you, always loving you, forever worshipping you, and always being a witness to you before the world. In Jesus' name, amen.